it's not I mean it's not all that far away I guess I'm closer to changing a grandchild's diapers than a one of my own kids diapers uh they might be changing your diapers before anything dang Ooh, we're not that old sorry oh man there's gotta there's gonna be technology for that right they'll have robots or something oh my god I hope not well actually maybe that's good if it can talk to you and keep you company uh, the Japanese it, are all over this stuff yeah and be like and change the uh change the station and heat up your hot pockets <laughs> like we're gonna have either of those things when you and I are in our 80s I think they're definitely gonna be hot pockets but it's gonna be filled they're gonna be vegan and um very uh very healthy for you soylent green hot pockets oh god and see football fans it's now time for the d3football.com around the nation podcast here are your hosts Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. That's the largest division with the smallest schools. And I'm Pat Coleman, the guy in charge of D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been involved with the site since 1999. And this is where Keith tells us how his bracket is doing. I didn't do a bracket this year. Can you believe that? I mean, I could believe it, but... Uh... I only do I only do a bracket for family bragging rights at this point. I watch so little Division One anything, let alone Division One basketball. Well, that's basically why I stopped doing it. I did it did one every year since eighth grade or sixth grade or whatever. And then a couple years ago, I think I just missed the deadline. There's you know a huge work group, and um, I didn't do it, and it didn't ruin the tournament for me. And then this year, I just basically didn't watch any games. Even I usually kind of tune in around the conference tournaments, and you know you watch a couple games during the year. I just didn't watch any, so I was like, I got no business doing this. Somebody even asked me for help on theirs, and I was like, <laughs> I know I'm usually the right guy to ask, but I'm actually the wrong guy to ask this year. I'm feeling good right now. We're recording this on Friday after the first night of the round of 16, and um, I have Michigan going all the way because, well, those of you who follow Division Three basketball know why a D3 guy might root for Michigan, and we're going to move on, but uh, basically that means I'm still alive as of today. Maybe not by the time you guys listen to this on Monday. And I'm back from what, well, could have been my final pilgrimage, my 40th trip to Salem, Virginia this past weekend. I uh, went back down there to cover the Division Three men's basketball final four. And uh, I was heartened to talk with the folks who will be hosting that championship 50-some weeks from now in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was good to see that those guys had plans. They were ready to talk about them. And they were engaged, engaged spectators and all of that. I don't feel like we got that kind of positive feeling from the folks who will be hosting the Stag Bowl next but we have a member of the National Committee on this podcast, and we'll ask him about that coming up in a little bit. And uh, meanwhile, we have Adam Turr working on a feature for the site about some of Division Three's pro prospects for 2018. Adam knows this. I'm not just assigning it right now on the podcast. And the legal uh, situations continue to grind. So, uh, Keith, what's new for you? Well, the biggest difference is I don't work in sports anymore. So I watch the Super Bowl at home like a normal. And then I've been out of the loop on the Olympics and the NCAA tournament. And uh, if you didn't know already, it's a cold, cold world out there in the non-sports realm. I think you'll, I think you'll grow to enjoy it. I know you've been working nine to five for a couple of years anyway as the uh, assignment editor guy. So um, that was the big change for me, moving from sports into into news, was that I could go home at night. Uh, but you could join me on the legal beat. What do you think? I think we got to start talking some D three football at some point during this podcast. So we probably should. Yeah, the legal beat continues on in Division Three. Last Thursday, uh, which is March 23rd, for those of you keeping track at home, former Wheaton player Noah Spielman pleaded guilty to the hazing charges leveled against him by DuPage County prosecutors, and he was sentenced to a form of probation and 100 hours of community service, according to the Chicago Tribune report. Uh, four other Wheaton players, or former Wheaton players, Kyler Kriegel, Samuel Tabas, Benjamin Petway, and James Cooksey all have their legal charges pending, and Spielman is expected to testify in those cases, so... Uh, that's our legal blotter for March 2018. We've had a legal blotter for like several podcasts running now. We like it better when there's not one, but you know, it's 250 schools. I guess this things are going to happen at some point with with that many of us. And we're kind of at the bottoming out of the off season news cycle. Most of the schedules are in for 2018. Uh, most of the coaching changes which are going to take place have taken place, presumably, um, although there were still ones, uh, still coaches being hired this week and a couple of spots that are still open. Um, and, you know, the NFL draft and all of that and free agent signings is still a month away. Um, I think often we would skip a March podcast because 
March is crazy with basketball, but we're not giving up. We're having a March podcast. Gosh darn it. I like to hear that. Our guests on this month's podcast, you'll hear from Washington League coach Garrett LaRose, uh, Lake Forest coach and West Region Committee co-chair Jim Catanzaro. He's on the National Football Selection Committee, along with Allegheny coach BJ Hammer. So did we pick these three guests, which are all great guests, by the way? Um, they didn't. Did they have a particular tie that binds? Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. No, there's no necessarily no theme that uh, puts these guys together. Uh, Garrett LaRose is a new coach, so we wanted to talk to him. Also, he's within driving range of Salem, Virginia, so I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him in person. Um, we've been trying to catch up with uh, Coach Catanzaro for a couple of months to talk about committee stuff and you know, a couple of state-of-the-game things. Back in January at the NCAA convention, the Division Three membership voted down some things that would have helped football with its uh, preseason practice and scheduling issues. And I've wanted to talk to BJ Hammer for you know as long as we've been doing these interviews because I've always I just found it interesting his whole kind of coaching arc. Uh, you know, first of all, being at uh, Wabash as a young guy, then going being a head coach at Whittier, um, coming back to Wabash as an assistant now a second time around. Older, but not even as old as you or I, at least it's not as old as I am. Um, you know, I thought that whole uh, that whole storyline was really interesting, and we get a chance to talk with him about it here. Yeah, if you want to look through look at these three guys through um, a certain prism, you could say uh, Garrett LaRose is the brand-new hire. Uh, Coach Hammer is um, was a was kind of Garrett LaRose at one point, younger guy who who got a, an opportunity and now is at his um, second college and has got a lot of experience and, and is building on that experience as he alludes to in the interview. Mm-hmm. And then Coach Catanzaro is uh, almost the older, wiser coach now in this, in this particular group because he's uh, he's doing the regional committee stuff and he has so much insight on how the rules get changed, and how the playoff uh, fields are selected. So that's one reason you'll want to stick around for that interview. I'm not sure that even Coach Cat is as old as I am. Kind yeah, of... he's definitely our contemporary, but uh, coaching-wise, maybe he's, uh, he's the elder statesman in this podcast. Rather than do a background check on Jim Cat and Zero and find out his date of birth, I'm going to take this time to mention that the Around the Nation podcast is currently sponsored by nobody. This is the time you could be reaching an audience full of Division Three decision makers, coaches who need equipment, who can influence decision to replace turf, put in fancy-dancy scoreboards, new grandstands, all sorts of things by sponsoring the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product right here before going to break, so think about it. Drop me an email at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. This is the time of year where you would be reaching almost exclusively coaches, although if you're a fan who's out there listening to this podcast, too, we really welcome you, and thank you for tuning in to Division Three Football in March or April or May or whenever you get around to listening to the March podcast. I'm here with Garrett LaRose, the head coach of uh, Washington and Lee University here on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Is uh, I'm making my way currently to the Division Three Basketball Final Four. This is, uh, well, a handful of exit stops, about 40 miles or so up the road. Um, stopping in and seeing the, what uh, the lay of the land is now at WNL. So, Coach, you have uh, taken over as head coach. Now, how long have you been head coach officially now? Uh, we're coming up on just over a month now, so it was mid-February was the start date, but uh, you know, kind of hitting the ground running here, rounding out the staff, and really getting ourselves geared towards the 18-19 year. What is the staff? What's the staff look like? How big is the staff? How many positions did you have to fill when Scott Abel went to go to Davidson? So our full staff here is a six-man staff. So with uh, Scott moving on and taking two of our staff uh, with him, uh, we ultimately hired three new staff members uh, for the 18th season. Uh, two of them are in the process right now. Uh, and then Bobby Jones, uh, offensive lineman and graduate of Washington and Lee, uh, is already on staff and uh, working for us right now. What was the process for you in terms of going through the whole interview setup because you know you were not the only WNL assistant who was a finalist uh, they brought in two other division three head coaches who were finalists to come interview for this job so did you see any of that traffic go back and forth how did you feel about your kind of candidacy during that process well I think our department did a, an outstanding job of kind of keeping us 
uh, well in the loop of what the process was uh, and making it a little easier for us to maybe not have any of those moments where you felt like you may be interfering with other people's interviews because certainly you want to be conscious of giving everyone the best opportunity to present themselves and how to make the program better because uh, ultimately for me I think the thing that grounded me throughout the process as an alum is we need to go forward with what's best for the program uh, and that was always something that I tried to keep myself grounded in the process. Uh, certainly that alumni status also kind of heightened it a little bit for me is knowing that you know this place holds a special place in my heart so uh, it did make the process probably seem longer than it actually was uh, but again I think our department really did a good job of uh, trying to find the best fit and give ourselves the best opportunity to have the program continue to move forward. We've talked with some other coaches and, and we'll do so elsewhere in this podcast uh, where they're in situations where they kind of have to re-recruit their alumni, where maybe the program's kind of uh, fallen back a little bit. Uh, they're coming into a situation where they're, you know, unaccustomed to, you know, to that school and those alumni and you don't have that problem at all. No, it, probably one of the, the best parts of the process once it was finally announced was uh, kind of getting those emails from all those familiar faces and those opportunities to kind of uh, reconnect with those teammates, those alumni over the last 15 years that you develop relationships with and know that, again, I think the much deeper thing here is Washington and Lee. Uh, you know, we're an institution that's uh, much older than the football program and uh, grounded in much uh, greater tradition, so I think that really helps. Uh, and being here, again, eases a lot of the transition of having a pretty good knowledge of the landscape moving forward. Is there more traffic like that, more texts, more emails now that you're head coach rather than the position you'd been in? Uh, I think certainly I think that's something that I'm uh, becoming accustomed to as a head coach. I think inevitably no matter where you are, uh, that traffic's going to increase. Uh, uh, but certainly I think the other, and I may be incorrect here, but as a, an email that I had, I think I'm the first head coach here at Washington and Lee since Bill McHenry, who was also a graduate. Uh, so I think that's uh, brought some other people uh, out and being more prevalent on the front there. So, uh, But that's something we uh, certainly want to engage because we think the people are the most important part of the program and our alumni are a big part of our success as we continue to move forward. It's certainly, though, the, uh, the university has been focused on uh, consistency isn't quite the word I'm looking for, but, uh, you know, maintaining, if not necessarily the status quo, the tradition, I'm saying this because in, you know, the last previous couple of instances as well, they've promoted from within, even if they weren't necessarily alums taking the head job. Um, I think I think that's something when you look across our athletic department, uh, there's been instances of promoting from within or bringing alumni back, and I think uh, that just speaks to the values that we have here as an overall university uh, of kind of being consistent with what we want to project everywhere, that our people are most important. We want people who have uh, a consistent vision for our overall uh, academic mission, our social mission, and then our athletic mission. Uh, and certainly I credit, credit Jan Hathorne, our AD. Um, when you look at our athletic success across our department, uh, winning the commissioner's cups and sweeps uh, over the last couple years, I think we really have an outstanding department here and I think she's very intentional through those processes of kind of keeping a consistency in these programs because again I don't think we're in a part as an overall department where we're looking to rebuild anything we're looking to maintain and grow from where we sit right now. I think I was last here in 2011 and chatted with uh, coach Muriello at the time and at that point the program was not too far removed from this relatively long stretch of either going four and five, five and four, four and five, five and four, many years in a row. Now it seems like the program has kind of built beyond that. And I think it's pretty easy to tie it to uh, some of the prolific offense. I know you and I talked about uh, defense before we started the interview, but I feel like that's been part of the identity of WNL football when it's been successful over the last eight years or so. And the big question on a lot of people's minds during the whole coaching change process was, would you guys maintain the same style of offense next year? Uh, I, just to kind of answer that question as it's been pretty prevalent in my transition here. We uh, definitely will. Um, it's something that Coach Colleton and myself on the offensive staff, as I said, we started that uh, with Coach Abel, who kind of transitioned here from the high school level uh, as an under center guy and really helped uh, evolve and grow that offense uh, under his kind of leadership there. Uh, but we were both here as well, kind of growing and learning. Now, I think uh, I've told everyone, I think I would have been a bad coach asleep at the wheel over the last 10 years if I wasn't taking my notes of things that you know I like or would slightly change. So uh, I think you will see nuances in the offense. But uh, when you talk about the core foundation of what we do, that will remain the same. And I think certainly as you spoke to, uh, I was recruited to that program that was five and five, four and six, and then very fortunate in my senior year to win our first ODEC title in 20 plus years uh, and kind of get us on this trend and track to being a better program. And certainly I think our defense uh, is 
a big part of that as well now for trying to take that next step as a program uh, to being more consistent on a national level and, and not always just talking about the competitive nature of the ODAC. Uh, we have playing such a great league with such up and down, you know, anyone one through eight can win any given year, uh, but certainly establishing with four championships over the last eight years that uh, we're definitely in the mix in that, that picture a great deal. Uh, but trying to get ourselves to established on a national level uh, and really grow our brand on that sense. Uh, and certainly I think our defense this year, when you look at their success, uh, leading our league in most of the uh, kind of pertinent categories, yards per game, points per game, uh, interception, sacks, you know, those types of categories, I think will really help us transition to taking that next step as a program where, as you said, I think we've gotten from five and five to consistently in the hunt. Now, how do you go from consistently in the hunt to a, a more national brand? And certainly our overall program depth and being more balanced on both sides have been a big part of that trend. Well, and so what does it take then to take the next step? Obviously, you guys saw Mountain Union and you saw them on a very strange day, right? Lots of things swirling at Mountain Union and then also, you know, rain and stuff coming out of the sky, which I think probably played pretty well into your hands. But what did what have you guys seen over the course of some of those playoff appearances that uh, makes you uh, think this is the thing that we need to work on next to get to the next level? I think it's it's been pretty consistent, and probably it's been consistent over the last 10 years here as a coach. Um, it's just continuing to develop our depth of talent. Uh, I always say I think our, our top talent pool, even from the time when I was here as a player, those top five, six players in your program, I think we've kept that talent pretty consistent. But uh, I always joke that I was one of those players when the cliff fell off after about the 22nd player, I, you know, I was hanging on by a finger. Uh, but at the same time, I think we've been able to develop a greater depth of talent, which breeds that competition and that practice level that makes you a better program. Uh, and we have to do that very intentionally. We're not going to have 125 guys on roster where you can just go out there and compete every day and grind everyone down and have next man up. So I think the big part for us is making sure as we recruit and develop the program, that depth one through 80 being intentional. And I think the other big thing we look at this year uh, on our defensive front, uh, we probably averaged closer to 230, 240 uh, man for man up front. Whereas when we went out and played Thomas Moore after the 15th season, we had uh, Jimmy Moynihan, great player, loved Jimmy. He was a converted running back to a, an outside backer, rush end. Uh, so I would say that defensive line averaged 215. So when you talk about competing on that national level, uh, you know, later in the year when tackling, running the football and stopping the run matter, uh, you, you need to be just a little bigger, have a little better depth of talent. So again, week 10, week 11, week 12, you're still rolling out that consistent level. And I think we're getting closer and closer to that being just a very deep team uh, overall that helps us be more competitive at that level. And we know well on this podcast, and I think a lot of people know that WNL is a very difficult school to get into. The standards are very high. And you talked about not being able to expand the roster. I remember when, and I'm sure you remember, you played on teams like this, I'm sure, where it was where 80 would have been a luxury, right? They were talking about more rosters in the 50s. Is 80 the cap? Do you think you can get larger? What's the What's the goal? Um, I think our goal to put a, a great product on the field uh, is somewhere in that 80 range because I think also, as we talked earlier with the staff of six, um, we need to be intentional about how we can develop our talent. I think if we were to say, you know, 100, you know, but then at the end of the day, how are we developing, you know, players 80 through 100? I don't think they can get the attention and we can't be diligent in making our program better. Uh, so for us, I think it stays right around that number uh, so that we can, again, develop our players and give them an opportunity to help our program long term. So I think that's important to us uh, and we value that that it's not I don't sit here and say you know our opponents they have 120 I need that to compete at that level I don't think you need that you need to be in a position where your coaching staff can manage and develop your talent so that you can be successful moving forward uh, you talked about the nature of the ODAC and, and that it's a, a, a conference where a lot of teams can beat any other team on any given Saturday conference is changing a little bit uh, Catholic left before last season Ferrum is coming in uh, Southern Virginia just on the other side of the highway comes in uh, a year after that so what do you foresee for the future of the competitiveness the intra competitiveness of the ODAC uh, I don't see a, a dramatic shift in that as you look at those are two teams who uh, have competed on ODAC schedules uh, probably for the last 10 years as it is. And, you know, Emory and Henry and Ferrum have a longstanding tradition of playing each other. So uh, when you talk about the overall shift in the league, I don't think that those two teams make a dramatic shift in the, you know, dynamic of the league. I think they all have their uh, recruiting niches and their styles and their feels that, uh, you know, make the league very competitive. I think uh, for us certainly on the non-conference scheduling, uh, it will make some of that easier for us as coaches of trying to find those games. And uh, I think that's one of the big advantages there. But I think we should still see the same exciting football in the ODAC. And again, I think, uh, you know, being a team uh, 
we never played them in my time here, but we scrimmaged Ferrum. I mean, we're not uh, unfamiliar with them as a program. I think Coach Grande's been doing a great job since he's gotten on board down there. Uh, so I think you just add a new player in, and, and we kind of keep that rolling moving forward of a very competitive week in, week out. You definitely can't fall asleep in the ODAC. And I'm going to ask this last question as kind of a personal request from Keith McMillan. On last month's podcast, I was talking with uh, Coach Matt Moore from Northwestern up in Minnesota about some of the movies that they watch on the bus on long road trips. And then I asked him to characterize his team in the form of a movie from the 80s or 90s. So now I've given you about five seconds to think about this. But if you were to characterize your current team in a, uh, a movie from at least our era, uh, or my era, Keith and mine era, what would you, uh, where would you classify them? For our team, and again, I think we're in the luxury of an a era where when we traveled on the bus, the VHS player was much more important that people do plug into their own worlds. But uh, this past season, there was a lot of Star Wars uh, that went across our screen, and I think that doesn't poorly characterize us because when you go through that entire series of movies, uh, a lot of different characters there, and I certainly think that uh, directly reflects us. Uh, we have a very uh, dynamic team of personalities. I think you'll have no two that are exactly the same, and that's something that I relish in the guys that we recruit is that uh, they all find different ways to fit in as a group. Uh, you know, I think it's sometimes dangerous if you have everyone who's exactly the same. You know, there's some football coaches who would say, yeah, fall in line, be exactly like everybody else. Uh, I kind of enjoy the, uh, you know, kind of ups and downs and the different inter interactions with different personalities. So I think we fit that mold pretty well for, for a movie selection uh, that definitely was on for a lot of our road trips this year. And certainly that uh, genre of film gives us a lot of hours of film to kind of pack into our road trips. Keith, we had heard that Garrett LaRose impressed people with his poise in interviews, and that carried through to this conversation, I think. I'll say this. I had one of my harshest critics in the room at the time. My 20-year-old Keaton and I were driving from D.C. down to the Final Four. So Keaton listens to a lot of podcasts and was in the room while this interview was being recorded. And that kid said, that interview sounded a lot more like a finished product than I would have expected. <laughs> uh, you know, you can hear the youth in uh, Coach LaRose's voice. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, since you can tell he's a guy who loves WNL and wants to be there. And when you hire someone young, I think it's comforting to hear that. Even a decent D3 school would rather not be a stepping stone, if at all possible. Yeah, I could totally see Garrett staying there a long time, but his wife, Elizabeth, is a, an alum of WNL as well, is an assistant at AD there, and you know she might be more upwardly mobile in her career. Good thing there are a number of D1s in the relative vicinity. Yeah, I, I thought Coach LaRose had a really good answer about keeping the offense intact although you know you always as a coach you want to put your own uh twist on it and, and not being asleep at the wheel uh, during his time as an assistant being competitive nationally seems like a viable goal for the generals there's no reason wnl can't get to where johns hopkins is for example uh depth one through 80 might be the most relatable thing he said because so many programs you know not all of them for a variety of reasons can recruit 150 or, or 200 players but we usually assume they would if they could in this case, it seems like WNL would actually prefer the quality coach-player interactions and relationships over quantity. Yeah, even at 80 guys, those guys have to be quality guys top to bottom. It can't have a lot of misses. The best path forward for WNL is to run the table in the regular season so they can avoid playing Mount Union and then get a first-round matchup that's manageable, such as, like you said, versus the Centennial Conference champ. Beyond that, I'm not sure, but you know, once upon a time, ODAC champs went deep into the playoffs. Sure, there was the, the Stag Bowl in, in 2001. There was a year Hampton-Sydney, uh, by virtue of getting a pretty good first-round matchup, was able to go out to Linfield in round two and play a pretty competitive game. So it does happen, but I think the ODAC's parity, in which they very rarely have a 10-0 team, uh, they're very you know often sending an 8-2 conference champ in there. The, you know, because their conference races, the title race sometimes four or five teams deep, um, it also means they get a bad a bad seed usually in the playoffs and, and you end up playing the Mountain Union in the first round or, or someone of that nature. Last thing about uh, Coach LaRose, interesting movie choice and, and reasoning. I was expecting something in the mold of Dead Poet Society or maybe like Revenge of the Nerds. All right, that last one is just because I know Adam Turr is listening and because I can't help but take shots at non-Randolph making own Well, Captain, my captain. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. You hear me? Sit down. Sit down. This is your final warning, Anderson. I 
how dare you? Do you hear me? Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by Jim Catanzaro, the head coach at Lake Forest College. Uh, his team coming off of a, a great run over the course of the past few seasons. He's also a member of the Division Three Football National Committee. So we'll talk about uh, those things as well. But uh, Coach, first of all, uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Excited to be with you. Well, we're glad to have you. Um, you know, we've chatted at the championship at Oh, I can call it the Stag Bowl. It's the final four that I'm not supposed to use those terms, but I can say Stag Bowl. That's okay. Ted chatted with you at the Stag Bowl over the course of the past couple of seasons, and I've been out to Lake Forest. I don't remember how many years ago that is now, but I'm glad to actually have you here on the podcast. You're coming off of a run where you've had one of the best running backs in the history of Lake Forest football, and I'm just going to jump right to the chase. How does someone, does someone replace Joey Valdivia? No, they can't. It's uh, That's a once-in-a-coaching-career player, and I can say that because we've got Mike Dow, our running back's coach, has been coaching at Lake Forest for 54 years. Oh, is that all? And he, Yeah, just, 40, just 54. And uh, he, he flat-out tells me that's the best player he's ever coached here. And so for us next year, it's uh, not trying to replace Joey, but continue to be our best football team moving forward. we got some all-conference guys on offense, a quarterback and wide receiver that I think will really help us take those steps. And I was going to say, on the flip side, you've uh, responded by improving the schedule, so you're playing uh, North Central, for example, as one of your non-conference games. That we are. We're having a little local flair for that game for a one-year contract. Congratulations. How did it end up being a one-year deal? When they flipped the North and South divisions here in the Midwest Conference, with the addition of the University of Chicago, it kind of screwed up our schedule a little bit. It's the school that'll be flipping. Yeah. So, so after the 2018 season, we'll move to the Midwest Conference North, and the University of Chicago will move to the South. You guys in the University of Chicago, I know are. I mean, I know Chicagoland is pretty large geographically, but you're not that far apart in the grand scheme of things. How do you end up not playing each other? Don't know. <laughs> It's a it's a it's an interesting mix to say the least, uh, but our new alignment will be more consistent with how we've been in other sports that had a north and south division. All right, fair enough. One of the things I loved about my visit to your campus is the way that the field is kind of tucked into the neighborhood. How does that? Um, well, first of all, if you could describe kind of the setting and then tell us a little bit about how that relationship is, because sometimes. Having a football stadium or an athletic facility right in the middle of a really nice neighborhood is not a great thing for a small college. Yeah, one of the things that's great for us is we do get good support from the local community. Uh, I mean, the house that's right off our end zone, their kids are out at our practices, looking through the fence or coming over, and the parents are at the game. So it's it's actually pretty nice. Where you get kind of the negative is the neighbors aren't going to want you to have uh, music blasting at practice. At uh, you know three thirty four o'clock in the afternoon while they're getting ready for dinner, and uh, so that's probably one thing that we don't do quite as much. But the where we are tucked in is really unique, and it's a lot of fun to be at. Do they also keep you from having lights? Uh, we've actually never asked for lights. Um, we do have lights during daylight savings time at the end of the season for longer practices. We have temporary lights. That's a that's a very D three solution. Uh, absolutely. It's, we used to practice at the Chicago Bears indoor facility, but then the NCAA passed a um, expense rule that we had to pay a going rate, and that kind of ended the ability to do that for two weeks. I gotcha. I'm just coming back from the Division Three Men's Basketball Championship, the Final Four, which, uh, like the Stag Bowl, is moving out of Salem. And the folks who are hosting the championship next year in 2019 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, were there. Uh, they were, uh, you know, absorbing all of the things that uh, Salem was doing. They were taking great uh, numbers of notes. We had good conversations with them. It seemed like they were in really good shape to take over this championship in the following season. Now, when we had similar conversations with the folks from Shenandoah, Texas, who were going to be taking over the Stag Bowl this upcoming December, I, I guess I have to say we didn't just get as much information from them or have as much detail uh, about what their plans were from 2018. In your position, from where you guys are at at the national committee level, what do you know about what's coming up for the Stag Bowl this upcoming season? Well, we'll have our national meeting this upcoming week. 
and I believe we'll get a lot of the details at that point. I think that one of the things that will definitely help is that Mary Harden Balor is the host institution, their host conference, and their experience at the Stag Bowl the last two years and, and a few others in addition to that will help them in the planning phases. One of the other big differences for our sport is it's a single game, and so it's not quite the tournament standpoint or different types of adjusting on the fly. And I think that the, the strength of the D3 championship committee, we know the questions to ask, and they'll have a chance uh, to present that to us. And one of the things about the football championship that you're, you're correct, obviously, it's just one competition, whereas, you know, there's like seven, uh, there's seven matches, games, uh, showing my volleyball ignorance here in volleyball to, to host that championship and swimming and diving is a, a three-day competition extravaganza. But football has all of these extra or a couple of extra elements around it, right? Uh, the, uh, the championship banquet now in the last... It's got to be seven or eight years now. The Gallardi Trophy mm-hmm. Banquet has been a whole separate thing itself. Um, there's a lot more going on outside of the football game for this championship. Correct. I would agree with that. I think it's one of the things that makes the Stag Bowl week really awesome is that it doesn't just celebrate the two teams that are there, but it celebrates the accomplishments of individuals as well as teams in Division Three. You guys have had a few months as a committee to kind of step back from this past season, reflect on it. Um, what else comes up at this championships meeting that's coming up here? I think we'll be talking again about their legislation that failed on the NCAA floor this year. Any recommendations that we'd want to make for the preseason calendar. Uh, we'll continue to digest information presented to us by the Sports Science Institute um, You know, regarding some of their studies last year that led to the changes we made in preseason the elimination of two-a-days, things of that nature. And and there will be some other topics that we'll want to talk about as well, just trying to advance the game. And, and you know, football has been under a lot of scrutiny and criticism throughout the country over the last couple of years. And it's really important for us to to be at the forefront of making decisions that are in the best interest of the student-athletes and the, the game. What kind of recommendations might you be able to make and what kind of um I guess, authority, for lack of a better term, or influence does the championships committee have to get some of those things done for this fall? So at the Division One level, there's a football oversight committee, and they make the rule recommendations and things of that nature. Division Three does not have that. And so the championship committee can make recommendations to the management council, um, playing in seasons committee, and uh, make those recommendations kind of like we did last year. And so the preseason proposal that was defeated started its roots at the championship committee and then was modified by the uh, admin council. This year, I think we'll continue to look at the preseason as well as any of the information that might be provided by the SSI to see if there's other things for the health and safety of our athletes that we want to try to look at. From your perspective as a coach, um, and knowing that the Midwest Conference has additional restrictions beyond the typical um, restrictions around spring practice and, uh, I guess, until recently, preseason competition in terms of a scrimmage, what were the effects of the shortened preseason for you guys this past season? I think the bigger change for us was the addition of the second scrimmage. So even though they cut back on practices, they increased the number of opportunities for competition in the preseason. I think that we still have our acclimation period, and it really changed coaches into what we wanted to do in the downtime. Were you going to do team building, or were you going to do rest? Were you going to spend more time on film? And and so I think the coaches took better advantage of their walkthroughs because we were allowed to have a football but then we still had to give more rest around the additional scrimmage. And so those lack of opportunities to provide a full day off, we were giving minor practices the day before and after a scrimmage. Whereas I think most of us coaches would have liked to give it a full day of rest after a scrimmage. As a committee member, one of the things that is probably the, well, there's two things that are most scrutinized uh, out of your role in each and every year is one the uh, doling out of at-large bids and the fact that there seem to be fewer and fewer of them every year. And secondly, the bracket. Uh, I want to talk mostly about the at-large bids because some of the bracketing is out of the hands of the committee. 
How do you guys, when it gets down to the end of it and strength of schedule in a 10-team conference becomes somewhat meaningless, how do you guys kind of de- determine which of those final teams is the team that ends up getting in the field? Lengthy discussions to try and weed out bias. And I think that that's the most important thing is you have eight members minus anybody who's in the tournament. And so you may only have five to six people on the committee at that point. And you're trying to look at who the competition was, who the head competitions were. And you're trying to really make sure that you find the best competitor in the, in the field. And you really try to not use previous season unless you really have nothing else. And you really try to avoid that as much as possible. Um, I think this year the racks did a great job of putting us in a position to have really good teams, but there were some definite separations. The racks being the regional advisory committees. We've spent a lot of time talking about things that aren't related to your specific football program. So uh, before we go or throw back to that a little bit, um, and now this has become kind of a traditional closer question for us, at least over the course of the last couple of months. Keith might go look and listen to this stuff and say, okay, we're done with the movies thing. But uh, uh, if you were to characterize your team as a movie from the 1980s or 1990s, what would you pick? Uh, Reservoir Dogs. All right. Uh, All right. That, Tell us you know, more. You got a, a group of anonymous guys that come together and create a special event, and, and they become close. They, and I look at how our team is nationally recruited and guys are from different areas. And the first time they may meet each other is when they're on campus. And then they you know, are together trying to make, create the, uh, the heist, if you will. <laughs> Instead of trying to get diamonds, we're trying to get the Midwest Conference Championship. stuff from Coach Catanzaro on the whole how the committee works standpoint. It's tough in football because the NCAA's strength of schedule formula for Division Three is basically useless. You have, and you have 10 team conferences, 10 game schedules, one non-conference game. I feel though like they're doing a good job making good decisions on at-large teams, at least for right now, even though they don't have the necessary tools. The thing there is the thing he's doing. Play another team non-conference that will probably be pretty good. You win that game and it's like a double bonus. It bumps your strength of schedule up, and you have a result against a regionally ranked opponent. It really gives a team an advantage because there are only five primary criteria. And of those, you're not going to have much separation on overall record. Your at-large teams are very likely 9-1, and one, occasionally 8-2 and two or undefeated. Uh, and they probably won't have common opponents or a head-to-head game. So winning a good non-conference game is super powerful. Uh, I really like Coach Canzaro's honesty about having a once-in-a-career player and how about having a 54-year guy on staff to, uh, to, to make sure that reference is really legit and not just something that you say and sounds good. Um, when I explain D3 to non-D3 people, I usually tell them that each team has a handful of guys who could have been scholarship players, even if only on the back end of a roster. But then there are the players who arrive in D3 and, and immediately take to it and have three or four seasons of starting and playing at a high level. And then there are those uh, edge-of-the-cliff guys, the glue guys that Coach LaRose talked about in the previous interview. I'd say I was a player like that who was a starter but not a star. But you need lots of those for your program to excel and to really grow. But those once-in-a-career guys can take a team from 5-5 five and five to 7-3 and three or what have you. You need depth to sustain that and to build a program. But if one good player over four years turns you into a winning program, it buys time to recruit into that success and build it out. Yeah. And coaches do that. Sometimes coaches parlay that success and go take a job somewhere else. Uh, so those are both possible paths that they could go. It'll be really interesting for Lake Forest this season coming off of the high of having Valdivia healthy and in the lineup over the last couple of years. Uh, it'll be a, a definitely a, a different take for them this year. Yeah. Hey, off script for a second. Since we're both field nerds in the sense that we're fascinated by D3 fields and the places they're located and what they look like and trying to get to all of them. (laughs) uh, I'm glad that you dropped that in. There are are definitely several colleges that uh, either the college grew into a neighborhood or they had to put their field a little bit off campus and in a neighborhood is uh, is the only place they could find for it or, or whatever the case may be. There are your your um, popular classic examples like Wesley 
There's uh, the most interesting one I've ever seen. I know I've brought it up on the podcast before. Is is Carol, which is like a, a almost like a stadium complex tucked into a street where there are like uh, across the street uh, there are houses. And um, you know, I know I've seen it on on video sometimes. Like I think Mount Ida, or you know, just beyond the fence, there are homes. So I, it is a really uh, interesting place to have a field. And I guess sometimes colleges do abut neighborhoods like that. Uh, Lycoming maybe be, maybe another one that was kind of a couple miles or a couple blocks off campus and, mm-hmm. and in a neighborhood where the, where the field is. You know, I guess you, you got to go where the where the space is. Beloit is another great example of that, too. This is also an example of a D3 stadium that is neither near a cemetery nor a railroad track. It does seem like that. That's the place where they always have space to put them in. And we kept a list, a running list of both of those for a while. I was also impressed. Uh, Coach Cat uh, had a movie ready off top. Uh, Coach LaRose had a pause and he kind of worked his way through the uh, the movie that most exemplified his team. But but Coach Cat uh, knew, although we know he's a hip hop head. So I'm surprised he didn't work in do the right thing or, or something of that nature. Uh, yeah, I have to be honest. Uh, after the LaRose interview, which was the first one of the three I did, I figured I'd better warn the interviewees ahead of time that that question was coming. So, uh, well, that makes a lot of sense then. There's a little bit of how the sausage is made in this podcast. Now on the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, we're joined by BJ Hammer, the head coach of Allegheny. Coach, first of all, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. You got to see the program up and close once a year before you joined them, and they were like 1-29 in, in the previous three years before you took that job. What did you see in Allegheny football that made it uh, attractive to you, made it uh, look like something that you felt you could do something with? You, you know, great great question. I, I, th- I think actually it was more from when, when I was a Wabash and we got upset by them in 2012, seeing the team that played really hard, and then, then honestly it was playing against them in the uh in the late 90s uh against uh, some kids they were they're were really good i think they were seven three eight and two that year shane ream was running all over everybody uh so they were they were tough and then talking with eric rayburn who's a mount guy obviously who i worked with the wabash and just him playing against him in the playoffs when he was playing and then coaching against him so in my mind and talking with eric a lot it was you know this is kind of a place that it should always be good at football um it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense that it that it wasn't a lot of good things there. So doing my interviews and investigation stuff, I felt like it definitely could get back to being a competitive football program in the in the North Coast Conference and adding a lot more parity and getting back to the top three where it had been for so long. But uh, that's really it. I mean, I just I, I had a hard time seeing Allegheny those last three years from playing against them and then obviously coaching against them our first two years at Wabash in 11 and 12, winning a close game and losing a close game in overtime to them. Yeah, I mean, this is a program that has a, a ton of tradition, but some of it's pretty far back. Played in the right. 1990 Stag Bowl, uh, but last went to the playoffs in 2003. Mm-hmm. Yep. There must be a bunch of those guys who have, uh, you know, who had been part of those programs and had followed those programs and then kind of drifted away during the lean years. What did you have to do to kind of bring them back in? Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you're at Ohio State, Michigan, Allegheny, wherever. It, it, you know, Alabama, great example. I mean, when they weren't winning, um, the, the crowds were leaner, um, alums were were upset, and that's what prompted them to get Nick Saban. But I mean, it's it's the same way wherever you are. And uh, you know, they were not happy. Um, they still they're 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 definitely more interested now, seeing that. You know, this year we were a lot more competitive and had chances to beat a Wabash and play tight games against nearly every one of our opponents except for really two um, and then one a handful. You know, so I, I think they're definitely more interested. They're excited. Uh, we have a great base in Pittsburgh who's here firsthand and gets to really see it. And then we're trying to connect with our alums in different areas as well. And we have a number of members of the Board of Trustees that are football alums. So they're they're anxious to see us continue on the trend that we're doing. Um, and, and, and quite frankly, Allegheny needs football to be good again. It was a big part of their identity, and uh, it will really help the school in itself. So we're bringing them back in the fold. Uh, we keep them posted on stuff, and we, we're just sending out our alumni email here with some we'll have some clips from our next week from our practices and, and the training we do. Um, so it should be good. But we want to try to bring them all back in and get them interested again for sure. 
You mentioned uh, nearly beating Wabash last year. Uh, Wabash scores with uh, 35 seconds to go to break the tie and uh, end up winning that game. But you guys uh, nearly turned the same tables on them that I guess that you had turned on you when you were at Wabash. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think my last three years at Wabash in 13, 14, 15, we beat Allegheny like 235 to nothing. Didn't give up a point to him in three years. So, you know, to, to get it really flipped around in just one year and be 41-41 going into him. And, you know, I'm not going to pick on referees at this point, but we, we picked a pass off and they, they said the knee quarterback's knee was down and I got about a billion still shots. His knee wasn't down. So, you know, I felt like we, we would have gone in and won the game. But, no, that, you know, unfortunately it, it, it was, it was a tough loss, but I think we've come a long way. Um, so we use that kind of stuff as motivation. And, and it's also kind of for our guys, you know, we didn't play very well the next week against Oberlin. Credit to them. They played great. Um, but it, we need to learn how to be really consistent. And you can't be happy with just being close with a good team. we got to learn to beat a Wabash at Denison and Wittenberg, schools like that, and a DePaul, you know, that we, we want to get there and, and try to continue to be competitive with everybody. This is not the first time you've been in the situation, head coach of a program that uh, really needs some help in a rebuild. Um, what did you take from the experience at Whittier, which was, what, 2006 to 2010, right. and then apply it here at Allegheny second time around? It, you know, such vastly different places. Um, and I was pretty young, pretty green and young at the time. I mean, I, I, I was lucky to have Greg Carlson as a mentor who I really learned uh, so much from as a, when I played for him at Wabash and then coaching with him. So he, he was a big factor and also my communication about Allegheny because I kind of looked at it like when he went into St. Scholastica. So I spent a lot of time on the phone with Greg when I was making decisions about Allegheny, if I was going to accept the job and, and, and my plan for that. So, you know, I, I credit him and the same thing at, at Whittier after he retired from there and I took over, you know, it, it, it's a challenge, but every place has different challenges. I think the the support group at Allegheny and the, the, the ability to get, uh, to a higher level is much greater at Allegheny, but you'll, you take all the things you learn. I can tell you a billion mistakes I made at Whittier that I'm not making at Allegheny. And a big part of that is finding a great coaching staff that you can really trust to do their job and have that continuity. That's a big piece I took from that. Let me ask about your staff a little bit as I was going through the list. Obviously, for me, that's a lot of uh, recognizable names. Uh, Braden Layer, who we remember from Denison. Van Hunt, who was a player at Wabash. And tell us about some of the other guys and how, how you kind of assembled this group. Yeah, yeah. No, I got, I got everybody in um, about a year ago in, after my first season. And, you know, these were guys that I was, I was looking at as I was – interviewing for a couple different head coaching jobs decided on Allegheny and, and Braden really stood out to me. I thought he was really sharp. I like, I like coach Hayden at Denison a lot. We talk a lot and, you know, he was at Denison, then he went to Swanee and uh, I believe that their staff got released there. The head coach did. And, you know, it was just a great opportunity. I had an offensive coordinator job and I wanted a guy that I think could develop and that was sharp and that's going to work really hard. And that, that was Braden. I mean, he's, super intelligent young coach and you know, obviously we improved significantly on offense and um, I think he did a great job and he's he's improving he's a hard-working recruiter so he was a guy I really highlighted and at the time we had an open O-line position and Matt Cochran who also played at Denison you know Bray Braden and Matt graduated together so they knew the system we were putting in and Matt was just a, a great fit for us. He was a Wesley, so we had a good background of winning, being in the playoffs. So I thought, hey, two Denison guys know the system. Things are going to run smooth there. And Matt's done a good job coming in with the O-line and then our, our strength program as well. And then Van was a guy on my list already. Um, obviously coached him for a couple years, has some ties to Arizona. He went to Apollo High School out there. and So good, great recruiter. So I thought he'd be an, another perfect fit. And then uh, just hired uh, Mitch Mitchell Zerniak, who's a Worcester alum, was at Carthage. Uh, so spent a couple years at Carthage, and, and they've been on the up and up doing their rebuild, very similar to Allegheny. Mm -hmm. So I thought, again, you know, hey, conference affiliation, another good fit. And then I uh, got a couple couple guys from uh, Pennsylvania, got some local flavor, guy from Erie, uh, a couple guys from uh, Pittsburgh area. Uh, one played at Clarion, one played at St. Francis. Uh, another, the other guy played at Slippery Rock. So having the local ties, too, is really good. So I, I really like the group. It's a good young group. Uh, and I don't want to go on on this, but it's kind of funny. We were joking around at a defensive meeting, talking about some some kind of joking about a pop song or something from the 90s and uh, I looked at him and I realized I was in college and 
when these guys and they were all six, seven, and eight years old when this song was coming out. So made me feel a little old, but but I like the youth we have because they they really grind and work hard in recruiting, and uh, they're getting better as football coaches too. I didn't think you were old enough to be the old guy. Then uh, that, I'm not sure how old that makes me and Keith. Then I, I know I tell you it, it gets it gets kind of scary when you're thinking about it. But uh, no, they they they're doing a good job. But yeah, I'm trying not to be the old guy. Trust me, um, as best I can. But uh, it, it tends to happen, unfortunately. Uh, we'll hit the '80s, '90s pop culture of the podcast coming up in a in a few minutes. You guys have uh, spring practice coming up. So, what is spring practice like in the uh, North Coast Athletic Conference? Is it the full Division Three spring practice package, or do you guys have further restrictions? Yeah, we're we're pretty much on par with what the uh, what, what the rest of Division Three is doing. We really, I believe, it's fifteen total practices. We we typically go anywhere from twelve to fifteen. Uh, we incorporate a couple days of like testing in the weight room in there, so we can really be around our guys and do a couple extra things with them. But uh, it, it, you know, I, I love it at the fact that we get to be out there and doing stuff. It, it, some of it, you know, I, of course, I want to be in pads. I've always been a, a big uh, proponent of doing that, and. You know, I, I'll, 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 my AD knows I always platform for that as much as we can. But we're gonna we're gonna take what we can and try to get better. Um, we we actually practice three days a week, so we go Sunday and Tuesday. And what we do is uh, we go separate practices. So we have a defensive practice and then an offensive practice. We go about an hour and fifteen each, and we in between them we do some special teams work. And then on Fridays we. Uh, we go against each other as much as we can, trying to make sure you know there's no contact, everybody's safe. But those those two days, we're working on our opponents. We'll spend time on RPI, our first opponent. We'll spend time on Worcester, our second opponent, stuff like that, trying to get better and just really working on skill development. So, is there any uh, plans in the cards to take it overseas or an out of the country trip during the summer so you can get padded practices once every three years? You know, we're thinking about it. Uh, I, I think for us right now, just just to reduce expenses, we've done that at Wabash, and, you know, that was an awesome time. We went down to Panama, and I yeah. thought that was – and it really brought our team together, eh? Um, after that, I think, uh, in, you know, 13, we were 9-1, and then in the playoffs in 14-15. So I credit that trip as a big part of that. But I think we're going to look into something in possibly Canada so the expenses are a little less. Yeah. Um, I know some teams that have done that, and we're not that far from there. So I'm looking into it, to be honest with you. I'd love to do it next summer if we could. I'm talking with uh, former coach uh, Jim Barnes about that. So ideally it'd be overseas, somewhere in, in Rome or Ireland, something great like that. But if we can do it in Canada and give the guys, get more guys that are able to participate, that may be the plan we do. What's the next step for you guys? What do you hope to see out of your team in 2018? Well, I, honestly, it's being consistent. You know, to, to be a good football team, you, you, you can't have – and I'm, I was a history major, so I'm jumping into psychology here. We, we can't be a bipolar football team. You know, we were really super high at times this year. We were really playing really, really well. And then all of a sudden, there was no middle ground. We just took a big dip. So, I mean, that that's what would happen to us. So we, we got to learn to be really consistent. Um, great teams uh, are always they, – they play really high, but they never take a huge dip, and they're always playing at a high level. So we need to be able to be – consistent so big word i know it's not sexy but uh, consistency is the big word for us right now we're trying to become more consistent more stable with everything we do we love the big place trust me but i want to be consistent throughout that's uh that's our number one priority right now for our off season and spring practices everything we're doing and you've been around this team now for two years going into year number three kind of definitely have a opportunity to not only uh, understand the character of the team, but uh, shape it a little bit as well. So one of the things we've been talking with coaches uh, over, over the last couple of podcasts is asking them to compare their team to a movie from the 80s or 90s. And, and how do you think you would uh, compare your current team to something in that era? Man, I love some of those movies. So um, my wife and I watch them all the time. It's like one of the things we, we like to do when we finally get our kids to go to bed. So, it, you, you know, uh, the best comparison I, I'm going to say is is the red is Red Dawn with uh, Patrick Swayze, you know those guys, Charlie Sheen, because you know a bunch of young kids trying to trying to battle a uh, a lot of a tough opponent. I think it was like Russia and uh, and Cuba or something in that movie. It was a great movie. I watched it a billion times as a kid. Uh, so that that's a great comparison for us because we're trying to when you're young, you got a lot of guys still trying to figure it all out and come together. Um, but no, I think that that describes us because I think we we can really, really improve and, and scare some people and hit them hard, kind of they did in that movie. I think that's the best comparison. 
Keith, this guy could have been the head coach at Wabash right now if the timing had been better. Uh, instead, he's focused on giving Wabash and Wittenberg and the rest every challenge. Uh, and I need to give Allegheny credit for not just playing in the 1990 Stag Bowl, but of course winning it. Well, I was recruited by Allegheny, and this is how old I am. Um, the letters, I remember the letters at the top definitely said 1990 national champions on it. So you win a championship or you make the playoffs or whatever, you should definitely put that all over your recruiting material uh, because it uh, it opens the eyes of college of high school players who sometimes don't uh, who aren't even that familiar about um, about D3. And I remember coming from high school and we were like four and five, four and five and two and seven my senior year. And I was just like anyone who ha hasn't been winning could just cross them right off the list. It's terrible, uh, terrible logic, but also 17 year old, 18 year old logic. I, I thought the uh, the interview with, with Coach Hammer was pretty much just an overall look at, at a rebuild, how it gets started, how the coach makes his decision to 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 um, move to a place, how um, lessons at other stops along the way factor in, and then uh, and then the the real fascinating part was hiring the coaching staff because that really does make a difference. Anybody who's uh, listening, who's played, you know their memories and and their biggest influences will be of assistant coaches. And uh, and the the coordinators, not just of the, of the head coach. I mean, having a a good staff in place really makes a big difference when you're trying to build out a program. And I think maybe most importantly, it does it in recruiting. And and he mentioned recruiting uh, several times. Red Dawn, the first movie with a PG thirteen rating. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of surprised he didn't go with Teen Wolf since uh, he said his team was. He used the word bipolar, which is not one I, I would have chosen, but his team had multiple personalities, right? Teen Wolf was like the perfect 80s movie for that. Now is the time on our podcast where we dive into the Twitter mailbag. Now is the time on Sprockets where we dance. Even though we're in the offseason, we know you still have questions, so we suggest you keep an eye on the D3FB hashtag for a reminder on Twitter when it's time for us to step into the studio. And please try to come up with a better question than how is my team going to be next year? Uh, and this one is slightly better than that. It's from Andrew, who is at O-Drum, O-H-D-R-U-M-M, -M, uh, who asks, is this going to be the best Mountain Union offense of all time? And uh, that's a great question, of course, because, uh, let's see, uh, one Mountain Union quarterback transferred out is going to Walsh. Uh, another uh, quarterback, uh, Luke Porman, is transferring out. I suspect uh, we'll have more news on that at some point. And uh, we have the uh, ongoing updates about D'Angelo Fulford's uh, legal status, and I couldn't even say his name properly. My apologies. Um, but there's no news on that until April, at least. Let's just say this isn't the last opportunity we'll have to discuss those quarterbacks. Meantime, if Mountain Union has its quarterback back with a couple dynamic wide receivers, I'd say they have a chance to be among the greats. But come on, way premature to go best Mountain Union offense ever. I mean, Coach Karras could answer this better than us, but 1997 was pretty ridiculous. 2001 with uh, Chuck Moore and Dan Pugh in the backfield. The Nate Commit, Greg McKaylee, Pierre Garçon offense. The Kevin Burke teams. I mean, you couldn't possibly be leaning into more history. They're coming off a whopping... 12 points in the Stag Bowl, this most recent Mount Union team. So maybe this isn't the time to go big on predictions for that offense. But they do have ridiculous athleticism at quarterback and wide receiver. So assuming they do what they do at every other position, then the next two years could be special, even against that backdrop of history. Remember to send us a Twitter question for our podcast. Hit us at, at D3Football or use the D3FB hashtag when we throw out the reminder when we're going to the studios. That's just about how it goes. Do you know what the music means? Every thought of yours is a friend. Every thought of yours? I don't know if I have a lot of thoughts, but I wanted to relate a story about coaching that I've been holding on to for a while. Uh, I didn't tell it at the time because it would have been more apparent who it was, but I was at a game this season where a young head coach went through a bit of a learning curve. He was yelling at one of his wide receivers for his lack of focus because the kid wasn't lined up on the line of scrimmage. And he was yelling at him for so long that the coach had to take a timeout because he had neglected to get a play call into the game. Well, yeah. So control your temper. Um, but we're, you know, we're all always learning. And I think this podcast actually was instructive toward that because um, Coach Hammer talked about drawing on some of the mistakes he made early in his career. Um, and, you know, the, the coaches at each step of the game, you know, even though you come in and you have ideas about what you want to do, you're always going to learn uh, as you go and, and not to 
I, I probably shouldn't even bring this up, but I, I remember having my experiences coaching youth sports and the difference really was um, each year you, you grow in not, not really the X's and O's as much, but I thought the team building stuff you want to learn, you want to, you know, you realize you can't deal with everyone with this template where you come in with the idea, this is how things should be done. And you realize that, that individuals sometimes need, um, you know, more individualized attention. Some people need less. Some people, you got to push them harder. Some people, you got to come off the gas. I, I, that's what I learned from it. And I imagine coaching itself is a constant just learning experience because they're all, you're always refining your technique for, for lack of a better way to put it. It's the time of year where guys are going through pro days. Michael Joseph uh, Dubuque, the guy who played in the Senior Bowl and was invited to the Combine, is having his senior day. The day that we drop this podcast, actually. So keep an eye out for information on that. Remember uh, Andy Riemann, who is the long snapper at Mountain Union, was also in the Senior Bowl. You know, Matt Gano, the guard for Wesley, high on the radar. Uh, people have been talking about Niles Scott, the defensive tackle for Frostburg State, for as long as we've known his name. Uh, Andrew DiNardo, the punter for Catholic. Sam Minkowski, wide receiver for UW Oshkosh. Sam Markham, Central's uh, wide receiver. Um, that's just a, that's just a scratching the surface, though. Typically, there's about, I would say, 15 to 20 guys in Division Three who are in somebody's pro day somewhere. Yeah, you very rarely get a draft pick, maybe one, maybe two in the later rounds. Um, uh, Ali Marpet was the... the highest i mean he was the first day two guy we've had in in years um but mostly you're looking at day three guys and then um free agent signings and then there's another wave after that as teams will build their rosters out to 90 players in uh, in the off season and so before they get to the you know from maybe like player 85 to 90 they have a rookie tryout camp so there'll be draft picks there'll be those uh undrafted free agents and then there's just a group of guys that they scouted that Really, really long shots, but you get a chance three days maybe to get in, impress an NFL team enough to get on the 90-man roster, and then that means you can be with the team for the summer, maybe go through training camp and, and try to make the cut down to 53. And even if you don't, um, you know that experience helps you as, you as you branch off into other leagues, of which I believe there will be one or two more uh, alternate <laughs> ways to play pro football in the next uh, few years. Yeah, that'll definitely be worth keeping an eye on. I don't, the XFL uh, first time around happened so long ago, I don't remember if we had any guys in it. Uh, one other thing I wanted to note about this year's uh, draft and free agency process is there's still guys who were, uh, who haven't made it yet and have an opportunity to do so. Uh, Brandon Zilstra, the wide receiver from Concordia Moorhead, is somebody I was thinking of. He played in uh, the CFL last year for Edmonton. Uh, Joe Callahan, of course, is a much more well-known guy on that list, although he did play in a regular season game last year. So there are still plenty of guys other than the guys who played their senior year in 2017. True. And we saw the on Twitter... I'll say yesterday as yesterday, but the day before we do this podcast. But yeah, you may listen to it way down the line. But um, there was Callahan and and Gano uh, at Wesley together working out. So uh, so I guess you see that that NFL pedigree, and, and now you want to give back to your your college. So they uh, Wesley's definitely taking advantage of the publicity. Let's put it that way. One other thing before we get out of here, uh, we haven't had an official release from William Patterson yet, although now I'm going to go back and hit refresh just to 100% make sure. Nope, still not the case, but uh, we understand that they've hired uh, off, uh, let's see, defensive coordinator from Stevenson and former quarterback from Salisbury, Dustin Johnson, as their new head coach. Um, so that'll be interesting. Keith, uh, God, uh, Coach Flora was at William Patterson for forever and basically never got anything done there. It seems like that's not a place where uh, football is set up to succeed right now. Well, it, it's always struggled. It, it's uh, you know there have been times maybe where they bubble up to to middling, but it's been uh, it's been tough to uh, to break through. There were times where you know we've seen every team um, in the NJAC or in New Jersey cycle up at one point. Kane has done it. Montclair State has done it. Rowan had a long run as one of the best teams in the country. But we've never really seen uh, William Patterson cycle up. I do think having a former quarterback at the helm 
probably will help because their their biggest struggles last season were were offensive. So and uh, it, it, that that should help a little bit. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 193, released on March 26th of 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the offseason. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any place you get podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman, production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, and you can find him at djmentos.com, D-J-M-E-N-T-O-S. Thanks to our guests, Garrett LaRose, BJ Hammer, and Jim Catanzaro, as well as sports information directors Brian Lobsher, Jim Berger, and Mike Wojerski for their time and assistance on this edition of our show. And of course, thanks to the creator of Around the Nation on d3football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using that D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We also have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Brand new in 1999. And you can join the conversation by registering to post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. So we're in the offseason here in Division Three football, but there's still new content on our site on a regular basis. We continue to follow the coaching changes. We'll follow those players with pro prospects. 2018's football schedules are coming out uh, still, and you can always find a new podcast in this feed from us each month. See, any other point in the podcast, we would retake that part, but pro, pro prospects at the very end of the rollout, you're like, yeah. If you made it this far, you you, get, you can have some uh, botched words. It's like uh, I feel like it's the the rundown at the end of a of a game broadcast, right? This copyrighted broadcast is the property of D3Football.com and intended solely for the private personal use of our audience. I'm not going to show You're showing off because I know you have that memorized. I'm saying I'm not going to stop and retake that. Shall we let uh, Coach Cat take us out? Do it. That is awesome. I think you're going to be the first guy who's uh, referenced a Quentin Tarantino movie on this uh, in this question. <laughs> We got to know them all.